Welcome to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council, with your hosts, Steve Zylstra and Karen Nowitz. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites leading experts to have real conversations about what is happening in the tech sector across the state of Arizona. From regional news to innovative startups, companies, and emerging technologies, AZ TechCast covers the critical issues and economic trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. What should executives keep in mind when considering the use of generative AI to ensure their organization's data privacy? Well, we're going to find out in just a few minutes from our panel of expert guest speakers. I'm Karen Nowicki, president and owner of Phoenix Business Radio X, and I'd like to welcome you to this month's AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to today's features guest. We have Rebecca Clyde, co-founder and CEO of Botco. Welcome back to the studio, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here. Yes, we're so thrilled to have you. And I knew that when I saw the bio and the information about Botco that you had been on with us before, so I went and double-checked. It's been since November of 2020 when we did another episode here with Steve and I on tech trends, AI, automation, and analytics. So we're very excited to have you back. Great to be here. And a lot has changed since then. So, you know, we'll have a lot to, of ground to cover. Here. I was thinking the same thing. So many things have changed. And this particular conversation has really caught storm specifically. Mm-hmm. And with Rebecca today is also Chris Maida. He's the chief technology officer at Botco as well. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, no problem. Okay, <laughs> very good. And also we have with us Demetrius Dillard. He's a senior director of ISIT at Aspire Indiana Health. Welcome, Demetrius. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to say ahead of time that we might lose Demetrius. <laughs> We're hoping not because there's a storm. What's going right. on over there? You know, it, ju- it just came on. I didn't check the weather, but it is it is pretty bad outside. Winds blowing and everything else, sirens, all that. We lost power here for a second. So I had to move really quickly, but I think that's what we're about, you know, Justin. <laughs> well, we're excited that you were able to log back in and be with us, and hopefully you'll get to be with us for the duration. And sitting over here next to me, along with our accomplished experts, is my buddy Steve Zalstra. He's the Arizona Tech Council president and CEO. Would love for you to introduce yourself, and then we'll have round robin of introductions with everybody else. Steve Zalstra run the Arizona Technology Council, which is a statewide organization dedicated to science and technology-based operations. And glad to have you all here today. We are getting ready for a great, fantastic conversation around, of course, AI and some of the differences and nuances be- between how it's being used and where businesses can really benefit from uh, getting on the, the train, the AI train. Before we do that, though, we'd really love to have each of you introduce yourselves, a little bit about your background, the role that you play in the tech ecosystem, and then uh, why why would you think that we've invited you here today? What What can you offer us as far as the conversation goes? And Rebecca, would you be willing to start for us first? Sure, happy to. Uh, Rebecca Clyde, I'm a longtime now Arizona uh, resident, and I've actually created three more Arizonans by way of being a, a mother of three that were born here. You know, I started my career in technology at Intel, which was the reason I moved here right out of undergrad. Really have surrounded myself with technologists pretty much my entire career. I myself am more on the commercial side. I'm a, I, you know, got my MBA at Arizona State University and have really loved working in the business of tech. 
And then when when Chris and I uh, co-founded uh, Botco AI, along with our third co-founder, Anush Shukla, uh, we were really excited about being able to create a new software solution that uh, took advantage of real-time conversational capabilities that were made possible by, by technologies like AI. From that first day where we just had an idea to today, you know, we've been able to build a product, attract customers, deploy them here, both in Arizona and nationwide. Um, so we're really happy to be here and hopefully represent Arizona well on the, on the stage, the world stage of technology. Excellent. Chris, how about you? Well, if you believe that there's only Arizonans and future Arizonans, then I'm a future Arizonan. <laughs> so I did my, uh, I've, I've done, I come from academic computer science. So I, uh, I have a bachelor's from MIT and a PhD from Carnegie Mellon. I've lived all over the country following software, the software industry. For the last few years, I've been on the East Coast in New Hampshire. Also, I've been working in the software industry for since the late 90s. Where I co-founded one of the first marketing automation companies in Silicon Valley. And then I've been working in marketing automation ever since. And then we started Botco when the, I guess, the conversational AI slash chat revolution happened five or six years ago. I, I was in Asia and someone was like, have you heard of this WeChat thing? There's no websites, there's no email, there's just WeChat. And um, so that got us really excited about uh, building tools for this new platform. Excellent. Demetrius, introduce yourself, please. All right. So uh, officially, I'm Demetrius. I am the Director of Information Systems and Technology for Aspire Indiana Health. I've been in healthcare technology management, holding roles in clinical engineering, in IT and system administration, all the way up through to being a Chief Information Officer for NFQHC. So really well-versed in all things healthcare tech. And if, if you ask my mom, she'll think it's some stuff outside of healthcare tech as well. I agree. I mean, if we're talking about future Arizonians, I Love Arizona. Um, I used to go there every year to vacation. Uh, I have not gone in a while. So I've got to get back to see you all. I've got actually family and friends that live in Phoenix. So, Well, we'd love to have you back. And, and hopefully this will be an inspiration for you to come and spend some time here in Arizona. Maybe That's not right. in the summer months, but right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's jump into our conversation. Let's start uh, start by defining Generative AI, and how is that different from traditional AI? So generative AI, is, I mean, from our standpoint, generative AI is, a, is an AI model that can generate text or generate images and essentially create things that are novel. So previously, AI tended to do things that were more analytic. So it could look at text and say, this is a positive statement or a negative statement. It could do machine translation from one language to another, but it was, you know, it couldn't do the things that we're seeing with, with AI today, which is like, it can write essays, it can critique text, it can, you know, it can paint or it can generate images. So I think it's the fact that, that the AIs can now do things that appear creative to us is kind of the, the main difference between generative AI and, and the stuff that's come previously. You know, I would say probably one of the exciting things and why it's ca captured the world's imagination is because, um, you know, people can use it in so many different ways. And, and it has finally become accessible to uh, regular folks. You know, I think people like Chris have been working in AI since, I don't know, 20-something years. I don't want to date you, but... <laughs> Uh, but typically, it was something that was that was set aside for the computer scientists, for the machine learning community, for 
really folks that had, you know, lots of letters after their name. And, and now for the first time, it's really something that everybody has access to. And so, so I think it, it, the consciousness about what's possible and how it can be used and the expectation now that businesses have that they're using that capability has all of a sudden increased, right? Because people know that it's there. They're like, hey, I can use it. So why aren't you using it as a business to make my life easier? And I think that's the shift that is happening right now that we're all experiencing and why, you know, there's now pressure in every single organization, every single boardroom to figure out how to utilize this capability to the best uh, use possible um, to make, you know, services better, to make uh, customer experiences better, to create more efficiency within organizations and to reduce costs. I can't go to an event or have a conversation anymore without AI coming up. It's just everywhere. And why is that? Why is all of the sudden AI being discussed by just about everyone? Well, I think, I think from my perspective, it, it, it's a, I'll categorize it as a healthy fear, but also just a healthy sense of curiosity. Um, how far can AI take us? Um, how far should AI take us? Which are very good questions and questions that if you've not thought about them, you will soon, um, because a lot of the things that we do, um, whether it's dealing with Siri, whether it's dealing with Google, um, you know, there's some other ones out there, Alexa, you know, there, there's there's a lot of different things that we can we can benefit from or add value when it comes to AI. So I think I think it's a healthy fear and curiosity at the same time. So um, Rebecca alluded to this. Um, how can organizations take advantage of generative uh, AI? And um, what do you think is the skepticism that uh, companies have about utilizing generative AI? Well, from my standpoint, I think one thing that we attempt to do or what we do really well um, is leverage AI and tech in general in order to offset some of the burdens administrative-wise, financial-wise, and operational-wise. Um, so that puts us in a unique position where we can, we can look at the AI and say, you know, for one, how many calls can we avoid coming into our contact center? You know, in most cases, healthcare companies are struggling when it comes to contact center staffing. Um, so if we can leverage a large part of, you know, what people are calling for, customer service requests, quick questions, if we can allow the AI to do that, that adds value all across the board. Um, one of the challenges with that, though, is, is that when we talk about the QA, how do we judge or determine how accurate that data is? Do we you know, manage and take care of that on a as frequent basis if we had people doing that? Or are we able to allow the generative AI to be able to ingest you know, FAQs and other data sets in order to keep that information updated. Um, so that is one of those fear points. But again, the 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 point about the curiosity is, is how, how can we quantify or get the ROI from that? Uh, and when we are able to do that, that is that it, it speaks volumes for itself. Rebecca or Chris, um, anything from the Baco AI perspective regarding that question? Yeah, I, would, I mean, I... Just to, to build on what Demetrius said, I, I think the AIs are really good at doing automating routine tasks. Um, they're tireless analysts. Um, so I think, you know, businesses are very excited because the, the, the AIs can do 
they can automate a lot of rote tasks that, that humans find tedious. And because they're tedious, they don't pay full attention to it all the time. Whereas the AI doesn't care. It just, you know, it just keeps working and it just keeps working tirelessly, no matter how tedious it is. So I think, you know, for businesses, it's like, well, where, where do human, you know, where do we have people performing uh, repetitive routine tasks? And that's a good place where AIs can be assistants or supplements. And in some cases, even just take those tasks off their plate so that they can focus on more interesting and more complicated tasks. And, you know, but then there's this risk of, you know, the AIs talk a good game, right? So it's like they, they'll, they'll generate text that sounds great. They'll generate images that look really interesting. But if you look at them carefully, they're wrong. You know, there are stories about how the, you know, ChatGPT would, would generate a, a legal opinion with citations. And it turns out that all the citations were made up. You know, so if you're not careful to, to check the work, you, you're just, the AIs will, will just completely do something crazy that, that makes no sense. So I think that's the, you know, so I think businesses are excited by the possibility of this, but then there's all this, uh, you know, all these uh, horror stories and pitfalls about people that just sort of let the AIs operate autonomously without enough supervision. Right. And that's why it's so important. You know, the way we think about it is, you know, what is the data you're using to train those models, right? Are we providing some guardrails around how the AI is accessing that information in a way that's safe and secure and preserves privacy, doesn't leak information inadvertently? So it's almost like it's here, but you have to learn how to use it safely with the right guardrails and the right parameters in place so that we don't run into an issue or somebody's given misinformation. Because like in the case of, you know, Aspire Indiana or a healthcare provider, you can't give them made up information. You can't make up the hours of operation or tell them something that's not true. Oh yeah, we'll take your insurance when really we don't, right? That stuff has to be accurate. And so the threshold or the bar is really high in terms of making sure it's correct. And I think, interestingly, we can use uh, AI to build those capabilities that then provide those guardrails. And so, you know, that's one of the ways that we think about it within our platform. Karen, I'm, I don't want to dominate the No, you're, do, you're so. doing great. <laughs> I, as, we're, as we're chatting, I'm thinking about uh, even being on LinkedIn and reading articles and even sometimes posts now. And the narrative for some of the people that I've been following for a long time, I can tell that it's kind of changed. And I've, I've, left, I've been left wondering a few times, did they really write this or are they using, you know, ChatGPT or something else to do it? Because it's changed just enough that the nuances, I'm like, I don't think this is really you. So, uh, to, yeah, to accentuate your point, uh, we can't lose ourselves in this, even though there's an, a great opportunity here for us to do things quicker, better, more articulate, and then really critical to have the opportunity to have the data, feeding the right data in so we get the right put out, right? It's, I don't think it's any different than that. Let's talk a little bit about some more examples on how organizations are using generative AI to make their business processes more successful and more efficient. And then I'd also like to know, are there certain industries that are really escalating its usage? Where, what industries are you seeing that they're really just leading the pack? So the first part of that, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. Um, so, so as far as how organizations are using AI, I'll loop back to what Chris pointed out. Some of those administrative burdens where we can, we always want to operate at the top of our licensure. That, that's like one of the big things within, I know within healthcare, it is huge. 
you know, you want your high dollar people to be doing some of those, you know, those more intensive tasks, you know, when it comes to mental capacity and, you know, that skill set. Um, so when you you have someone that has like an MBA, you know, you don't want them sitting there answering calls all day. You don't want them having to enter data into a form all day. So one thing that that I see it as and one thing that we are going down the pathway with is um, allowing the AI to um, engage and interact with our consumers in order for them to capture and fill out that data and information and then seamlessly pass it back through to the appropriate systems, which ultimately goes to the appropriate parties. So parsing that information, that's something that's huge. Um, Within the healthcare landscape, pre-registration, pre-screening, overall, if there's FAQs, you want to try and allow the AI to interact with the consumers first. And if the AI gets caught up, you know, that's where that skepticism comes in and you want to make sure you have a fallback plan. Your fallback plan should then be your your employees or your staff. You know, that's where we kind of are, are leveraging the AI within our, our world here at Spire. Yeah. And, you know, I love that. I love that healthcare is really thinking about this widely. You know, um, I have three kids and I get uh, the fun job of often having to schedule their appointments. True story. I mean, there's been times where I've been on hold 40 minutes or longer and then I get hung up on because their switchboard shuts off. And now I have to do this all over again tomorrow and I've accomplished nothing. So in a lot of ways, this whole product is just uh, self-serving, right? Because I don't like to wait on hold. But I love that the the healthcare industry is... um, is embracing this this technology and and organizations like Aspire and Deanna are thinking about the consumer experience that way also. You know, how can we give people better access to care, make these routine questions accessible, whether it's 10 o'clock at night or on a Sunday, you should be able to get that information. There's no reason why we should hold that information hostage for business hours, right? I love that. And then we're seeing, you know, any, I, I tend to see this adoption and interest in this in any kind of industry that serves large volumes of people. That's where I'm seeing a lot of, so even contact centers are thinking about it for the same reasons that Demetrius had mentioned. A lot of consumer-facing uh, products, large brands like appliance brands that get a lot of phone calls about you know, troubleshooting your dishwasher, right, for example, or, or refrigerator, you know, things that you really need to work in your house. You know, these kinds of products could be very supportive. Um, AI could be very helpful in those situations as well. How about you, Chris? What are some other industries that you're thinking about? I think banking might be a good one, too. <laughs> yeah, I think um, anything with writing, the AIs are great. And, and you know, like we're seeing we're seeing this coming on very strong in like marketing, copy, editing, that kind of thing. And that's a that's a perfect application of the AIs because, you know, the AIs will generate something and, uh, you know, it's probably wrong. So you have you have a human review it. And, you know, that's very complimentary to, to humans because it's much easier to edit a document than to write it from scratch. So, so it's this kind of this, uh, you know, symbiotic complementary relationship between what the AIs are good at and what the humans are good at. I think, you know, along the healthcare lines, you can see things like diagnostic assistance, decision, you know, decision assistance. Is there a certain decision that needs to be made? Well, the human can make it, but then the, you know, the AI might concur or might want to point out some information that's been lost. So, so like I said, they're, you know, they're tireless analysts and they don't, they don't get tired. They don't slack off so they can um, help humans make better decisions or do higher quality work because they're always 
I guess, keeping an eye and, and helping to point out things you might have forgotten or missed. I can add to that, too. Um, my son is in the Space Force, and um, currently he's at the Pentagon. And he can't tell me much, but uh, he said that they use generative AI every day. And they were probably using it long before we were, right? Because it's the government. And uh, mm -hmm. so I think it's uh, you know being used in, in aerospace and defense in a significant way to protect us from our enemies. Yeah, and that, that's a good point. I mean, I just something that touches us all at every industry um, is cybersecurity. I, I mean, just think about the amount of data that is generated and requires, you know, teams of individuals to take a look at. Um, one thing that we have added value with is, is from our cybersecurity perspective, we get the assistance of generative AI, you know, like that next gen AI where it helps us scour through false positives, you know, actual positives. It keeps us on our toes. I mean, it, it allows us to be able to, um, you know, petabytes of data are being, you know, examined or analyzed in, in minutes instead of days like it used to be. So it really is a value add for us. Um, but you still got to, this is me, you still got to have a human component or touch there where you can actually, you can examine some of that stuff yourself. Right? I think it really is still value add. So um, there's a lot of lingo in the AI business, just like uh, many others. And uh, we hear about um, uh, large language models and um, natural language processing. What are those and, and what's the difference between them? Chris, that's a perfect question. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess how we got here, there were two break, in terms of language, there or natural language processing, there were two big breakthroughs. So if you look back five or 10 years, we, we were using what are called recurrent neural networks. So say you're doing machine translation, you wanna translate an English sentence to a Japanese sentence. So if you say in English, if you say something like, uh, I am going to Tokyo, that might translate to, Boku ga Tokyo e And that literally translates as, I, Tokyo to, in the act of going am. So it's kind of backwards compared to English. So a recurrent neural net looks at each word one at a time. So for it to learn that the second word in English equates to, is equal to the last word in the Japanese sentence is very hard for it to do because it's only looking at one token at a time. Um, so what transformers did was they, they said, well, screw that. Let's just look at the whole sentence at once and then we'll output the entire sentence in Japanese so that we can, we can, it's much easier to see this association between the, the second word in English and the last word in Japanese. So that was kind of, that was the first breakthrough. And then the second breakthrough was the researchers started building larger and larger models, which is how we get large language models. So when you build a model that has billions of parameters and you train it in a bunch of different tasks, like uh, a thousand or two thousand different kinds of tasks, it turns out that the models start to be able to generalize and perform tasks that they've never seen before. So that was the the big breakthrough in the last two years with the large language models, and that's the the thing that kind of enabled systems like ChatGPT to exist. So um, you know, so so compared with the the kind of natural language processing we had ten years ago, which was either statistical or or with recurrent neural networks the level of performance is just, you know, night and day. 
today compared with what we have had before. And, and that's why all these new applications are, are made possible by, by these, these uh, new language models. I've, I've thought about that particular application translation. I'm, we've had various members over the years that are in the translation business. I'm assuming that occupation is going to go away. It's very easy to automate. You know, I've got a, a two-year-old son, and um, he watches a lot of kid videos on YouTube, which means I watch a lot of kid videos on YouTube. What I've noticed in the last few months is, like, if he finds one set of kid videos, then suddenly the same kid videos are, are available in, like, 10 other languages. And I was like, how did that happen? And it turns out that YouTube has translation tools. So if you, if you upload a video in English, um, you can run it through these YouTube translation tools and um, translate it into any other language you want and then and then deploy it out on YouTube in all those other languages and get much more reach that way. And I think this is, you know, the, the transformer networks and the machine translation stuff was actually invented by Google Research. So it does it's it it's it's perfectly it makes perfect sense that they've they've commercialized this technology in, in their YouTube translation tools. Before we continue on with that uh, portion of our conversation, I'd like for us to take a quick little break to thank Arizona Commerce Authority, who is AT AZ TechCast 2023 Innovation Sponsor. The Arizona Commerce Authority is the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. So let's take a break for a few moments and hear from Arizona Commerce Authority. Our streamlined pro-business approach helps you achieve more by putting less between you and future success. Less red tape, lower taxes, less distance separating you from the tech leaders of tomorrow. This innovative ecosystem will supply your business with tools and resources to compete in the 21st century and beyond. But your future is more than just business success. In Arizona, the lifestyle you want is at your fingertips. Explore cities known for their Southwest heritage and modern vision. Enjoy beautiful scenery and endless outdoor activities on land, water, or snow. And if you're looking for a little friendly competition, we've got plenty of teams to choose from. With constant sunshine, vibrant culture, and natural wonder, Arizona provides a style of living that's entirely unique. People from all over the world call our state home. From student leaders who fill the classrooms of our top-ranked universities to a skilled and abundant workforce that's ready for what's next. To the neighbors, friends, and peers we interact with daily, Arizonans are united by a pioneering spirit that moves us forward. So as you look to the future, know that it's filled with the perfect balance of innovation and high-quality living that makes life better here. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> that commercial was made for the two of you to make sure that you come and spend some time with us. Right. <laughs> for sure. They, awesome. they, they should mention that Arizona is about to have the best Taiwanese food in North America. That's Are right. We? Yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, they've imported a whole community of chefs and restaurants yeah. for TSMC. Yeah. <laughs> it comes just from my spicy, spicy beef Did noodles. Did not so. know that. Good to know. All right, yeah. Demetrius, come on out. Okay. 
<laughs> I, tra- I travel for food, so <laughs> yeah, come on over. There's the motivation. I'll take you out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, do let us know when you come out. That'd be fun to meet in person and make that connection. So let's continue the conversation around large language model, LLM. What should organizations keep in mind about prompt data ownership? Well, it, it depends on your the contract terms with your LLM providers. So ChatGPT has some pitfalls in that anything you type into ChatGPT is, uh, uh, can be used by OpenAI for training. So you've seen some stories of company employees who put proprietary data into ChatGPT and, and you know, exposed it that way. Uh, some people might, you know, like I think a, a doctor, at one point a doctor put a, a, a write-up to a patient in there, which exposes protected health information. If you don't know the, the terms and conditions on your language model, then assume the worst. There, you know, there's if you go, go through the API, that, that it doesn't apply. But but basically, in, if you're using a language model like this, you have to know the terms and conditions for the, the data that you're sending it. So uh, entering data into an LLM uh, could expose uh, your data, proprietary or otherwise, uh, to the public domain. You, in your case, you said it was uh, within ChatGPT, but is there an inadvertent opportunity to expose it to the public domain? Yeah, the, the sequence could be you, you give the data to ChatGPT or to an LLM, and then that becomes part of their training data. And then once it's in the training data, it could surface in the future for somebody else. So if, if someone asks it a question that gets answered partly from your training data, then it, then some of your information could theoretically get exposed that way. Um, I see new apps almost every day that purport to use generative AI and <laughs> what they do. Um, what about those kind? you know, if you're not using open AI, but you're using somebody else's service in AI, does that uh, expose you to the opportunity of putting your information in the public domain? It really, I mean, it, it depends on the service. Like if the service says they're going to keep your information protected or they're governed by data privacy laws that require them to keep your information protected, then they'll do that. If the service is quiet about what it does with your data, then you know, all bets are off and you have to be careful about that stuff. I was going to chime in on that one. I mean, so from our perspective, um, one thing that we do is, is we, we, vet, we vet our vendors, right? perspective as you're vetting your vendor you should have um you know controls in place to make sure what's going to happen with that data what what's it look like at rest does anybody else have access to it if so who are those parties and what are they using it for so then as you're doing that you also put legal guards in place baas or you know business associate agreements you put those in place you have to make sure that you know what your state and federal rules or guidelines are as well um, so a lot of times what we do, and and some folks tend to say, oh, well, this was something I use in my personal life, right? And just because you use it in your personal life doesn't make it appropriate to use in your professional life. So when we talk about, you know, the AI tools that some companies are putting out there, it is a good idea to vet your existing companies as well to make sure that the legal paperwork matches with this explosion of AI adoption. So that's one thing that we tend tend to do 
in order to make sure that. And, and as of right now, it's actually on our operations committee agenda for me to talk to it about with staff, because I do hear a lot more where folks are saying, you know, I, I asked this question of chat GPT. I hear you guys are deploying and expanding Botco even more. You know, what does this mean? What does this look like? Um, so just just knowing that people are talking about it, one, is a good thing for me. Uh, but two, you still have to be vigilant. You still have to make sure you're, you're being protective of your personal, you know, identifying information or personal health information, you know, or IP, you know, your intellectual property. You need to make sure you take care of that as well. Because as, as you, it's just like the conversation with when you put something on the internet, no matter how much you try and take it down, there is a copy of it somewhere. <laughs> so you've got to be mindful of that. So if you've got some, some private information that you don't want to get out there, you've got to be really mindful about the, the, the AI or the systems that you're entering it uh, into, because it could be a part of a public training database. Well, maybe at some point we'll have some national data privacy rules so that uh, this is less of an issue as every state has its own now. And, uh, you know, it makes it very difficult to know what being protected and what's not. Rebecca, I think you were going to add something. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that we provide and we also ask of our vendors is that we look at their compliance audit trails, things like that. So we'll say, hey, if you say you're HIPAA compliant, do you have audit results from an independent third-party auditor that back up what you're saying? And, and we also provide those to our customers too. So just making sure that entire chain of privacy is protected within the various software applications that are being used and the different vendors that are part of the, a solution or a tech stack is really important. So I would even ask, you know, I ask about all of our vendors the same thing. Like, can I see your audit results? Can we see your paperwork? You know, we might even do some of our own kind of spot checking as well, just to make sure that everything is as it is said, right, in, in those systems of records. So um, without, without an existing kind of national privacy rule, we have to rely on these kind of industry consortiums that are setting these standards. And, and that's kind of uh, the, you know, the, 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 the practice right now within the industry. Well, um, we've talked about vetting vendors and how important that is. Um, are there opportunities? I'm sure there are for our employees to misuse uh, generative AI. And are companies beginning to set up um, sort of rules uh, around the use of um, these systems in, uh, in the businesses? That's a really good question. I, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm less concerned about the misuse of the AI from our lens, just because a lot of the things that we do is industry shared. It is driven from a place of collaboration. So, you know, when you get information and someone does something that really stands out, you know, and you start to think about how, how did they get that info? You don't want to put too many hurdles in place to deter folks from engaging with the solution or tool that allows them to increase their level of knowledge as well as their teams or their company. Because ultimately, the benefit from that is your consumers. We all start to benefit from it. So for me, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of putting hurdles in place, um, you know, or even worried about, you know, someone's misuse with it. Now, I will tell you, my son, you know, who, who's getting ready to be a senior, um, I kind of know what his writing level is. 
Um, I do know that from an education industry perspective, they're putting in some guardrails that'll actually help protect. Um, so I, I wouldn't be concerned that my son, you know, or anybody, you know, anybody's child is is probably misusing Chat GPT or other AI solutions to the point where they're not learning their material. Because ultimately, you don't want to, in essence, decrease someone's knowledge or skill set because they they figured out, oh, I don't have to do anything because I can just let the AI do it. Well, you've got to still be able to engage. You still have to have the ability to explain and do what you need to do. So for me, hurdles aside, um, I see it in a professional world as a way for us to bridge some gaps that otherwise we would either need to add more resources, meaning manpower uh, or woman power. I don't want to put any gender on that, but um, you you really you really do um, see a benefit from it. So I don't really see it as a bad thing or anybody being able to overly misuse it, at least not right now. Yeah, so I've heard some data points of companies that were prohibiting chat GPT. So there was a story of people at Samsung who put some proprietary code into chat GPT and asked chat GPT to critique the code. And that was, you know, trade secrets that Samsung did not want to be disclosing to a company like OpenAI. And um, their response was to, to ban the use of chat GPT in the company but then also to start to set up their own AIs that they can use internally to, to do the kinds of things that, that people wanted ChatGPT to do. And, and I think like Demetrius said, this AI technology will has the potential to give us huge productivity gains throughout the economy. So you can't not use it. But so the challenge is really how do you use it safely in a way that protects privacy, keeps your confidential information safe, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and because... It's learning, if you will. We all want to be contributing to ChatGPT so that it continues to get better and better and more accurate and more accurate as time goes on. And with that, though, there are some ramifications, right, around privacy, specifically HIPAA and uh, GDPR, CCPA. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the concerns when it comes to AI or LLM when it comes to compliance? So from my angle, the, the concern really is um, we are a behavioral health care company at heart. You know, we, we do integrated, you know, care. So we have an integrated system of care uh, approach to health care um, here at Aspire. So with that being said, I mean, we've got 42 CFR Part 2 requirements that we have to have in place, which is the substance abuse um, and behavioral health, psychotherapy specific um, protections for patients and clients. So we do have that concern. However, um, we already have policies and guardrails in place that states that you can't put patients, PHI, um, their psychotherapy notes out in the public. So it's just a matter of education. Um, I think as long as we continue to have the conversations um, out loud and, and not in private, not in like some super secret high level meeting, um, you make sure you open up forums that are for your frontline staff, as well as include your consumers. Um, that helps you kind of stay in front of, you know, any of those issues when it comes to um, the Privacy and the Protection Act. Because, again, we don't have a national standard. Um, states have their own interpretation of some things. We do have the HIPAA privacy and security that everybody adheres to, but some states have even more tighter constraints. Um, the the SOC 2 compliance type 2 uh, stuff like that is really what we try and keep, you know, at the forefront of what we do. Ultimately, it is education and communication around um, what, what, what's the good thing to do and what's not the good thing to do. 
for Rebecca and Chris, uh, you have uh, Gen, I, Gen AI uh, chat cloud. Uh, first of all, what is that, and how can that be com combined with LLMs to provide even more extensive service to your customers? And this one, we actually have a good slide for this. <laughs> we came prepared. All right. <laughs> Love that. Our, I think it's our first slide in I don't know how many years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Well, <laughs> we're just trying to show a couple of visual aids here to, to tell the story. <laughs> and, and Chris, you'll have to kind of describe it out loud for the folks that maybe you're just listening. Oh, I thought you were going to talk. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the, the Gen AI chat cloud, and I'm, I'm usually not... I'm not used to answering this question. It's basically the thing that Botco does is, is um, our goal is to give you state-of-the-art natural language and AI in, in a very low-code, no-code type of environment. So you don't have to see all the, the, the details behind the scenes. So as part of that, we're, we believe we're moving into this environment where there are many language models available. So in addition to open AI, there's a number of open source models. Um, Google is about to roll out their model and we expect some, some, other models as well that in addition to the general purpose models that say OpenAI and Google might have, there, there will be some uh, very specialized models that know things like drug interaction, uh, clinical diagnoses, et cetera. So we designed our architecture to be plug and play for these models. So we have our internally trained models, we have OpenAI, we have other third-party models, and we can um, basically go to the right model for, for, any specific, uh, for any specific task. As part of that, you have to be careful, as, as we've you know, been talking about this in this session, you have to be careful about what you send to these models, because if it's a third-party model and you don't have the right contract terms in place, um, you can't. You have to be careful about the kind of information you disclose. For example, protected in health information under HIPAA. So what we have to do is sort of is scan the prompts that we're sending and make sure that um, nothing sensitive gets sent over, or you know, if, like if, if there's a BAA, then we're okay. Um, if there's not a BAA, then we have to scrub out or anonymize any, any data we send over to avoid disclosing PHI. I used to work in aerospace and defense, and a BAA was a broad agency announcement. What, what is BAA? It stands for Business Associate Agreement. So it's an okay. agreement between, so in this case, say the healthcare provider and the technology provider, that the technology provider would adhere to the certain standards of security and privacy and protecting that information and making sure that there's also adequate reporting in place should there be a leakage or, or breach um, that takes place. So it just outlines the specificity of how the data has to be protected, what is considered protected information, what needs to be encrypted, and then what are the ramifications if something goes wrong. Yeah. So, so it's kind so of in a nutshell. Yeah. And HIP, so HIPAA is a national level data privacy law. Right. And so it governs like organizations that have data and then their uh, vendors or associates that will do things with that data on their behalf. So the BA is the agreement between the data owners and the, the vendors. Yep. Yeah, it, it, from my lens, it makes me feel better because at that point, it's a, it's a check to say, you know, I'm going to treat your data as if you would treat your data. That's the good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. So um, what about success stories? Uh, implementation of generative AI or integration uh, with generative AI. Can all of you speak to some real-world examples? Sure. I mean, from, from my lens, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw a shout-out here to Baco. Um, one of the ways that we saw um, success with them is, is we, we struggle. You know, we struggle with staffing with our contact center. We struggle with 
you know, the, the vast complexity of our organization. We have many different service lines where some of the service lines may overlap, uh, some of them may not. But, you know, when we ask for something as simple as um, financial assistance, when a client or person interested in services with us is, is, is curious about how we support from a financial perspective, you know, and someone is trying to call and, you know, our contact center may not have the answer. You know, we have to connect them with another department. The other department is busy doing face-to-face interactions. Um, we now have the ability where BOTCO, when someone goes to our website, uh, where we have named our BOTCO through an agency-wide contest, um, AVA. Uh, it stands for Aspire Virtual Assistant. Um, so we rebranded uh, BOTCO as AVA. So it makes it a little bit more user-friendly. Um, you know, so as people are asking AVA, for uh, financial assistance uh, questions. They now are presented or will be presented with a form that would normally be filled out during registration. So it gets that, it cuts down on that time. So it makes it where um, our staff and operations and practice management are a little bit more efficient because they now have that data ahead of time. So they don't have to do it while the person's there, which means that that time is now allotted back to the clinical team so they can actually spend more with that patient. So um, it really has been a success story for us. It's important to note, though, that we really are, when we talk about the skepticism, we help control what data is being presented when, um, a, when folks are interacting with Ava. Now we have the InstaStack, so that is also helping, you know, to the point where when we go and look at, you know, interactions and see what the probabilities are, it, it's a higher probability. It actually connects them with more of the information. Um, we can keep our data updated. So it really helps not just from the consumer perspective, not just from our operations perspective, but me personally, I'll be selfish here. It also helps us from a technology support perspective. So it is, it is all the way around successful for us at this point. So. Beautiful example. Thank you, Demetrius, for that. <laughs> it's always great to hear that it's, it's working. And Demetrius is not alone uh, in, in talking about this. You know, we we typically hear that kind of story from our customers where they're saying, hey, I can support more customers with fewer resources. This gives us better access to let our clinicians, like you said, operate at the top of their license to sure, not managing forms, right, which nobody wants to do. And um, with staffing constraints being so huge, particularly in healthcare, it, it can make a tremendous difference for the experience of everybody involved, truly. Chris, any other examples sort of outside BOTCO that you can think of that uh, would be useful? Well, co- I mean, coding is one that I see on a day-to-day basis. So it's, uh, it used to be you had to type every little thing, and if you got something wrong, had to stop and fix it. And now uh, the coding assistants are great. You kind of like start, you start typing something and and it just completes it for you. And, um, you know, when I first started using it, I was like, how good could this be? But then it started, you just start writing something and and then it just like writes the rest of it for you. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a a different, you have to get into a different mindset because you're just kind of like thinking in broad terms and then it'll, you know, it'll write the details down for you, but, uh, you know, you can, you can write a lot, a lot more code much faster. So I think that that's a huge success for, for the AI, for the AI technology. Yeah. And we're even, we're even using AI to generate scenarios. So like when we bring on a new customer or a customer has a new service line, 
Um, it used to be that we used to tell our customers, hey, bring us all the questions that your customers have asked you in the past or give us your transcripts. We don't have to do that anymore. We just use AI to generate the types of questions people will typically ask that kind of business and also generate the answers. So you used to have to create the, the questions and the answers. Now the AI will create both. And, and we can even run scenarios like, okay, now test this chatbot, test it and tell me how good it is before we used to have to do the testing. So even uh, from coding to implementation, all of that has now been automated in a way that we can now really support, even us as BotCo, we can now support more customers too because of the technology. So it's like, it kind of layers itself on so many on, in so many ways. Um, if you really think about all the possibilities in using it, it's fantastic. Well, since we have a drought of software developers in this country, that's probably a really great thing, right? Um, we're having to outsource or nearshore or whatever, so now uh, ChatGPT can do it for us. So, uh, Karen, I think we're getting close to time. You want to yeah, ask let me, the last question? Last question for us. I think we have kind of have circled around this, so it might be more of a summary, but let's see if it springboards a little bit uh, more around this. What are some of the best practices that organizations can enforce when considering the application of generative AI? Let's, let's summarize, but also let's see if there's something else there that we can offer our listeners and viewers. I mean, I like to say, um, think of, uh, of where you might be experiencing a business issue uh, where you could really improve the experience. So whether you're trying to improve throughput or customer support or productivity, I always say, like, start with a problem and then figure out, you know, how can generative AI solve that problem? And then just make sure that whatever solution you use has the guardrails in place to, to do it safely, right? That you're not going to end up with hallucinations and such. Uh, but I would always say start, you know, don't feel like you have to boil the ocean. Just start with like a, a problem that you're tackling. And then all of a sudden you'll see all the ways that you can apply it in other ways. Uh, that would be my best practice. Anything you like out? So, uh, yeah, uh, I would say just to add to that, um, I think that the, the thing to keep in mind is that the, the in, in terms of text or NLP, um, the models are very good at um, speaking, but you have to assume that all their facts are wrong. Mm. So um, in terms of best practice, that means uh, when you're designing processes around these, make sure you have review steps so that you're not giving the models undeserved autonomy. And I would say a second important thing is, is make sure you understand the, the contractual terms around how you use these models to make sure that you're in compliance with all the relevant data privacy laws. Absolutely. I, I, I agree um, with, with both. Um, you know, with me, it, it, it's always um, identify a need. You know, what, what is that need and, and can the AI help versus hurt? Um, I, I think that is one of the big things. And like Chris mentioned, thank you for that, Chris. I think that's one thing that oftentimes we forget is, is that you have to have a QA process. You got to be able to test. You got to have your quality assurance. You, you got to be able to test what's going in. Um, so that way you can be assured of what's coming out is valuable. Um, that, that has been one of the ways that we've done it. Um, I'd say we, we've had some lessons learned. I'd say we've used some best practices. Um, but one of the lessons learned has been don't boil the ocean. Really understanding that you can, you can and you should take it, take it slow. You, you don't have to try and accomplish everything at once. Choose a specific department, a specific service line. Um, have those conversations of what and where the AI can help with efficiencies because you don't want to alienate your staff or consumers. 
So you don't want to shock the system too much, but you do want to have the system feel comfortable, create some small ripples so people feel comfortable in the wading pool. Um, and then when they're feel, when they're comfortable, you know, put some floaties on. You know, that, that helps you be able to kind of address, you know, any concerns or issues moving forward to the point where you can say, all right, now we've got this problem. Here's some potential recommendation solutions. Um, now here we are where we can bring the tech in to offset, you know, some of the concerns that we have and pilot it, test it, test it, test it, test it. There is nothing wrong with testing it. You can deploy it today and then on Monday, turn around, test it again. <laughs> it really is a good thing uh, when you test because you may see something that you or the team didn't see during the initial implementation. So, you know, just test it. Well, I could see a, an entire league of consultants growing around helping companies uh, employ or deploy uh, open AI. So. Absolutely. And and how soon can we anticipate that there will be some national, I don't know, standards or regulations around this? Is there, We've kind of hinted around that a couple of times, but is there is that in the works? Does anybody know? Or is that a far-fetched <laughs> dream? I feel like the Tech Council is probably more involved in legislature yeah. and <laughs> legislative activity than we are. Yeah, well, we, That's why we belong to the cha uh, the, the council, so right. they can help us. Good plug for AZ Tech Council. <laughs> so we have an AI committee. It's uh, very robust. Uh, in fact, the person that created the AI program for Intel is uh, one of the co-chairs. The head of AI for ASU is on the committee. I've recently asked them to take a look. The president has proposed some rules and regulations Good. around AI. They have an, an RFI out right now, a request for information. So uh, anyone who has ideas on how the government should regulate AI, uh, there's an opportunity for them to weigh in right now. Yeah. Good. Fantastic conversation. We sure appreciate your expertise and, and your willingness to share some examples and stories and even some of maybe the, the pitfalls or the things to be mindful of. And we want to thank Bianca, who is uh, not with us today, typically is. She's always responsible for bringing such great uh, panelists together. So thank you all for your time. We greatly appreciate it. You've been listening to AZ TechCast, brought to you by the Arizona Commerce Authority and Arizona Technology Council. Arizona Commerce Authority is the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. Thank you again to Arizona Commerce Authority. If you're interested in being a podcast participant or sponsor for the council's AZ TechCast, please contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to learn more about opportunities to further position you as a tech expert, influencer, or innovator. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thanks again for joining us for AZ TechCast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of AZ TechCast with Arizona Technology Council, featuring leading tech and business experts that help influence and shape our great state and the industries they serve.